Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Get up! We are putting a little extra stuffing in your stocking. Arnie, Brock, and Stuart are reviewing Black Christmas. I see Billy still gets a Christmas present. But before you unwrap your present, know that this podcast contains harsh language and spoilers for the films. So if you listen before you watch the films, then there will be no surprises for you Christmas morning. Merry Christmas, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Black Christmas, starring Imogen Poots, Lily Donahue, Elise Shannon, Brittany O'Grady, Caleb Eberhardt, Carrie Elwes, and directed by Sophia Takal. This is Brock, co-ho-ho-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. I'm dreaming of a woke Christmas. <laughs> this is Arnie. <laughs> I think you're going to get it. Ho, ho, ho. We didn't know up in the Blumhouse they were planning this. Maybe until a few months ago, I had no idea that this little slasher series we did sort of as a Christmas one-off, what, like 10 years ago, it feels like. It was 2010, and it was a two-off. Yeah. We came in for one, and we were surprised there was a second one, and now we're surprised there's a third one. But if it makes you feel any better, this was equally a surprise a few months ago to the director of this film, because this was fast-tracked. Blumhouse had such a success with Halloween, and they picked up the rights to this in, a, I think, a bundle deal. When they were getting Halloween, they got part of this too and so in february they go to sophia to our director here and say we would like you to do black christmas it's coming out december 13th do whatever you want so they have no script they have no concept they had nobody cast and you have what is that 10 months from concept to release yeah, tight. It's more like TV production and less like film, but it can be done. It's not desirable, but Sophia Tikal is probably grateful to have a major gig. I did see her first film. Do you guys know her? She is emerging voice in, I guess, what you would call elevated horror. She did this psychological thriller called Always Shine. Mackenzie Davis, who was the most latest Terminator... It's a story of two actresses that go off on vacation in Big Sur and swap identities. It's actually kind of a remake of Igmar Bergman's persona. Igmar Bergman being the big art house director of the 1960s, who I actually credit for inventing elevated horror. He was the first guy to say, let's make horror movie tropes play out as psychological drama. Of all you just said, the name I know and have seen films of is Igmar Bergman. Okay. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Seventh Seal, Death. Like, this is the kind of representational figures he puts in this film. And what I'm getting at here is Sophia Takal seems to be aspiring to do that. So if she's coming on board, I'm expecting an elevated horror Black Christmas. But unfortunately, the film wasn't that good. So I'm also not expecting <laughs> too much. The trick is on a psychological drama like that, you really got to have good acting and... I don't know whether they didn't have enough rehearsal time or the actresses weren't good or the directing wasn't strong enough, but I'm hoping for better things in her second film. Oh, you were talking about the first film. I thought you were talking about Black Christmas with all of that. <laughs> Me too. I'm like, what are you talking about? What's elevated here? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, well, this, it's very clear. I think the trailers make it explicitly clear. We are elevating this to the political climate of now. Oh, sure. This is a social justice warrior Black Christmas. I didn't know this movie was coming out until I, I was seeing something for now playing it might have been what came out this year an annabelle or something like that i mean 
lots of horror films. But yeah, that might have been... I, we didn't know it in the summer. I feel like I heard about this way late. Like September, maybe? Maybe it was when I went to see frickin' Three from Hell in theaters. But I remember going to a movie, seeing a trailer, and being like, Well, fuck, they're bringing Black Christmas back? And double fuck. They gave everything away in that trailer. They show who the killer is. They show the rise of the last girls. They show a scene that is literally the climax of the film in the teaser trailer for Black Christmas. I'm like, well, do I need to see the film to review it? Or can I just say I know what the film is from the trailer because I knew what it was? I didn't realize they'd be going PG-13, but... Well, here's the thing. I feel like ultimately this is less a remake of Black Christmas and more of a rethink on Get Out. Blumhouse had obviously the biggest hit of their career by taking on racial politics. And so gender politics are loaded these days. There's a lot on college campuses about being believed, speaking out, sexual assault. It seems like something that you could play with. And I say go there. I actually think that it helps this movie to have its own identity. It makes it feel contemporary. This wouldn't be the Black Christmas that we would have in 1974, which also had gender politics. I mean, which also was feminist. It had an abortion subplot theme. But this one's really going to run with that. It does seem, though, like this is hardly part of the Black Christmas series. I don't know why Blumhouse even bothered to license. To me, I'll just put it out there, if there's no Agnes and there's no Billy, then there's no Black Christmas. I think if you're on a college campus at Christmas and there's a slasher around hacking girls and choking them with Christmas lights, it counts. I went back and I watched it. Was I the lone defender of the first movie on the original podcast? Oh, hell yes. Okay. Well, actually, more accurately, I was in your camp about understanding and and agreeing with you on some of the stuff that was good about it, but I couldn't recommend the movie because too much didn't play with me. But I was more on your side than where Arnie sat on that first one. And I respected the film well enough. I was just bored as hell. I revisited both of them too, and I completely stand by what I said in the podcast, which is Red Arrow for both, but the 06 one is far more fun. I forgot how fun that was when I revisited it. I'm like, did I possibly recommend this? Because I could possibly recommend the 06 one. It's funny. That's funny you should say that because I had the same exact reaction I had, but slightly different in that I stand by everything I said on that podcast about 2006, but I was even more disgusted by what I didn't like in that movie. So you said you enjoy things even more. There were some things I kind of enjoyed, but the things I didn't like, I really didn't like watching it again. And you know, I didn't even go back to Black Christmas 2006, I, my memory was that it was the campy one. It was the one that had candy canes going in eyes and fingers on sugar cookies. Why wouldn't you go back to that? Yeah, I, you know what? We had a disagreement over where to lie. I like the fact that the original kind of played it straight. It wasn't a campy Christmas. It was at the dawn of the slashers. And it was the murder mystery. I mean, you really were trying to guess. I couldn't remember who the killer was supposed to be. I forgot that there was essentially two. And that they spend the whole movie teasing that out. That it wasn't just Kira Delea wanting to abort the baby, but that there was some kind of crazy baby somewhere in the attic. Theoretically, we're not even sure if Udo Kier was a killer or just a red herring. Right, exactly. And so it held up. I felt like it still had surprise, it still had suspense, and I do feel like this movie is trying to tie back into that mood and not trying to be a dumb slasher film. It's trying to look at the slasher film and say, what can we say about it from a feminist perspective? That's probably a good way to go in 2019. What Blumhouse said to, to call was, you need to pick three things from the original. Watch the original movie, 
They never talked about the 06 one, but watch the original 74 <laughs> film, pick a few things out of it that speak to you, and that's what you have to keep. And other than that, there are no rules here. You can do whatever you want. Did you figure out those three things, Arnie, or you have a suspicion of what they are? I mean, you can see them in the movie. There's the garbled phone call. Bag over the head. Yeah. So, yes, I guess you can do anything you want because people don't remember Black Christmas. The opposite side of that coin means people don't care about this as a property. And so, how will we entice them? They're releasing this on Friday the 13th. It stands alone as the only horror movie out right now. It's got to compete with Jumanji and Last Christmas, a romantic comedy. I mean, it can proudly say, if you want horror for Friday the 13th, this is what you have to do. Smart counter-programming, right? I mean, horror audiences are being underserved. Now, from my audience, I don't think this was a calculated gamble that paid off. I went, and it was rather amusing for reasons I'll discuss, but I, when I walked in, one guy sitting alone in the middle, two women sitting in the far back row, and me. So, four of us for this Black Christmas, and gender equality, exactly 50-50. When I saw my performance, I sent you both a picture. There was a nobody in the theater but me. All the way through the previews, finally three people showed up as the movie was starting. So it was basically a private screening. Those three people didn't say a word. The only person who laughed was me the few times I actually did. All right. Well, my funny story for mine is the two women in the back wouldn't stop talking. And so the guy in front of me turned around and shushed the women in the far back row, which I thought was a perfect epitomizing of the movie itself is the masculine trying to take the voice away from the feminine. You must not speak. Yeah, well, that is part of the issue here. I mean, by making it a feminist slasher movie, that's telling the primary audience of men they're not to enjoy what they normally do. And so, yeah, I do feel like it's an uphill battle to sell women on a slasher, which is probably why the trailers made it look more like a action film. I think that the audience for this are the characters in the film, which is young adult, millennial or slightly younger than millennial women who are into feminist issues, which is why I think the trailer sold what it is, is this is not going to be your usual slasher film, which many people say, and I will argue against, are misogynistic and you just get to see bimbos get killed. I think that argument completely ignores the last girl syndrome where a strong woman is almost always the one to overpower the killer. But what they're saying in that trailer is you're not here to see women get killed. You're here to see women kick the ass of a predator. And that's why they gave so much away. But I also think that's why they went PG-13. There was a discussion where they were told, the director and her co-writer, that if you use the word rape, it's an instant R rating. And so... Huh. It's like saying fuck more than once. Rape equals, well, I guess because it makes people consider an adult subject matter. Well, this is what Blumhouse and Universal told them. And they said, well, we're not not saying rape. So we're making an R-rated film. But they filmed every death twice. I'm guessing we'll be getting an R-rated Blu-ray release because every death was filmed in an R-rated and a PG-13 rated version. And then when they went to the MPAA, the MPAA is like, yeah, we have no problem with the word rape. You can say rape in PG-13. Just cut out some of the fucks and lessen the deaths. And so I think to try to broaden the audience, because yes, you are telling a lot of men, this is not for you, then they wanted to be able to bring in younger people by making this PG-13 cut. 
And to point out, I mean, Get Out was not not for white audiences. I mean, I do think you can bring a minority perspective to a mass audience if you hit that flashpoint, if you get people talking, if it engages debate and people don't feel burned out on the issues because they spend all their time yelling about it on the internet, they want to see it dramatized. This could be a culturally important movie. One thing I noted about my audience, it sounds like it was bountiful compared to you guys. (laughs) I went to the Friday the 13th matinee. It was primarily older people. And I was like, why is that? And then it hit me. Black Christmas is 45 years old. The slasher genre itself no longer skews young. The teenagers that went to see the first slasher movies are now buying senior discount tickets. That's how long this genre has been with us. And we should probably put away the perception that slashers are for children. They're not. We have a long history of people, including ourselves in middle age, who watch and enjoy these films. So that's who was there. And one of them came up to me afterwards. She was like, why were you writing so many notes? Are you doing a review? I was like, yes. And then she just giggled and left. She didn't ask where she could hear it? (laughs) No. I think she thought it was funny that anyone had to write about this. Everything you're saying, Arnie, about where this came from and everything you guys are saying about the trailer, I didn't experience because this came out of the blue for me. I didn't see the trailer. I didn't read up on this. So when the movie hit me with all the messages and all that, I saw it. Okay, I can see why they're doing this now. But I came in blind to this. And what I got was not what I expected at all. Uh, I did not, I mean, obviously I had a suspicion that they were going to go somewhat in this direction, but not to the extent that they did. I mean, you saw a trailer, right? No. Every trailer that I saw told you very loudly how this was going to go. No, Stuart, I did not see the trailer. I make a point of not seeing trailers of movies I'm going to see. And this one, thankfully, I just didn't see a movie that it was actually attached to. So no, the answer is no, Stuart. I did not see a thing about this movie. It wasn't hard to avoid. If I hadn't been in that one movie that one time, I wouldn't have seen the trailer either. It's not like this had a huge social media push. Nope. It's not like this even got a wide release. We have in our town 28 cinema screens. I thought this got none of them. It turned out it got one. It was way down in the listings. Jumanji's going to take most of the dollars. I think even Clint Eastwood's film about the Atlanta bombing is getting more buzz. I've seen more trailers for that film than I have for Black Christmas. Arnie, actually, when I tried to buy tickets on Fandango, Black Christmas is opening this weekend. There are movies that are opening next weekend or have been open for a few weekends already that you can find earlier on their scroll before you find Black Christmas. So maybe that's done by popularity or maybe... Maybe just that's crazy. Usually the new releases are like one of the first three things you can find. I think it's very hard to find this movie. I had to go two towns over to even find a, a showing. And this is a brand new movie this weekend. It's crazy. You know, it only costs five million, so they don't have to make a bunch to make it profitable. Still, that might be a big hurdle if this movie is making no impact. I don't see it having an international appeal, but Stuart, why don't you say why in a plot summary? In 1819, black magic practitioner Calvin Hawthorne established a university where young men are trained to go forth and subjugate women and minorities. But 100 years later, social justice warrior Chris is leading a vocal female student population to change things up by protesting Hawthorne College's shameful history. They've already successfully petitioned to have the bust of the founder moved from a prominent place on campus to the Delta Kappa Omicron frat house. But in doing so, they've accidentally released a stream of tar-like toxic masculinity from inside the statue of the sexist. And the black stuff now takes possession of all these deke frat boys, making them kill any woman who dares to speak out against the culture. One of those targets is our main character, Riley Stone, played by Imogene Poots. 
Two years ago, Riley was sexually assaulted by Delta Kappa president Brian Huntley during a Christmas talent show. Now Brian has returned to judge this year's pageant, so Riley choreographs her sorority sisters to perform a heckling version of Up on the Rooftop that shames the rapist and his bros. What Riley doesn't know is that Helena, one of the sorority sisters she's mentoring, is working with the Deeks to steal personal items from each troubling woman. And in receiving those talisman, it completes a spell that summons zombie Deke pledges and cowls and black masks to murder the outspoken girls by stabbing them with icicles or choking them with Christmas lights. Eventually, a trio of mass killers breaks into Mu Kappa Epsilon sorority during an orphan party commemorating the fact that some girls are staying on campus for the Christmas holiday. Riley kills one with her car keys when he tries to kiss her under the mistletoe. Chris takes a kitchen knife to another and realizes that their blood has turned to black ooze, much like the ooze Riley saw streaming out of the bust at the frat house. The women corral the help of meek guy Landon, who has been quietly stalking Riley at the coffee shop and may not be trustworthy. He creates a distraction at the Deke frat so that Riley can go destroy the bust of Calvin Hawthorne. But Landon is actually overcome and brainwashed by the bros with the black ooze, and Helena, playing victim, tricks Riley into getting caught as well. An evil professor played by Carrie Elwes comes out to manalogue the whole conspiracy plot before some random sorority sisters show up and start a girls against boys fight to the death. Riley kills a rapist and smashes the Black Magic Hawthorne bust, and Chris sets the professor she was petitioning to remove from campus on fire, and the whole frat burns down, credits roll to a white cat licking black ooze from its paws. I ask, do you feel clean? Just to put this in perspective, after watching this movie, I did read some interviews with Takal, and we had this discussion when we reviewed the 1974 Black Christmas about how we'd never find out who the killer is. Takal revealed who the killer is. She watched the movie and she figured it out. We didn't. The killer was misogyny. <laughs> and so when you kill one guy who's killing you, another guy is just going to show up to kill more women because it's all a misogynistic viewpoint. And that was one of the big things she wanted to carry into this one. Yeah, and I agree with that. I definitely feel like the twist ending was that we were so focused on the guy that wouldn't let the woman abort her baby, her body, her choice. And it turns out that predators are everywhere on this campus. And so, yeah, it created an extra layer that, yeah, they can definitely tap into. I don't think she was wrong to identify that. And I do think that that is wise to exploit if you're remaking the film. And we start with a quote from Calvin Hawthorne. The way it comes up on the screen and the font and everything, I thought Calvin Hawthorne might be an actual philosopher with whom I was not familiar it says, man possesses powers so formidable they can only be considered supernatural. With a proper education, men can wield these powers and go forth into the world. Yeah, I mean, it gets into the really heart of the debate that often really boils down to any gender politics I've ever heard is that aren't men biologically stronger, smarter, more capable? Should we be mad that they're dominating the world when that is their manifest destiny? When the movie opened up with for that quote, and then druids, I thought I was in the wrong theater. I really <laughs> did. Like, I got up and looked outside the theater to make sure because nobody was in my theater, and then there was no sorority house. You should have watched the trailer. Uh, the druids were in the trailer. Well, again, I didn't watch the trailer, so I'm like, oh, well, this is really strange. And then finally, when it gets to sorority house, I'm like, okay, I'm in the right place. Yeah, they want to set up early through this quotation, we're dealing with black magic. And that is... Definitely something new here. In neither previous version did we go full on supernatural. 
I don't know if that's wise, but Get Out had that. The Black Guy auction and this whole large cult that was all about farming out Chris's potential abilities. I guess it makes sense to let us know that a similar cult is trying to hurt women. Yeah, let's literalize toxic masculinity, right? To being a toxic goo. Yeah, it's actually toxic waste. And the thing is, that movie is not the slasher movie. And they try to marry that concept to what was already done in the 74 movie, and it creates a lot of confusion, at least for me. I don't feel this is a slasher film. I don't even feel this is a horror film per se. It's not scary in the least. I don't think it's even intended to be scary. I think it subverts. No, no, I definitely, it's a slasher movie. We start with an opening kill, and I think it's kind of creepy. I'm not scared, but then again, I'm a 46-year-old man. I don't get scared at the movies. I feel some tension and some skill in the direction in setting up Lindsay leaving the library and being stalked. I agree. I think this opening scene with the girl and how they fake her out and how she's so willing to fight back but three or four times before she actually gets it, right? This whole opening scene here, I thought was setting up a different kind of slasher movie. So the opening kind of tells you one thing and then what comes afterwards is different from this, what I think this opening scene. It, rarely do we get this kind of scene the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's the thing is I think it's selling me in this first scene that it is a slasher film when we see the guy walking behind Lindsay and he's texting somebody and she starts getting, this is the 21st century update. Instead of prank phone calls, they get direct messages. <laughs> Things are dropped into them through Facebook or I guess it's the school messenger, but still. You're laughing. Are you with it or against it? It's reminding me of one missed call. Anytime you take text messages... There's nothing scary about a text. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's a great way to update it. I think because in the first one, I thought this is how they're going to do the scary phone calls instead because nowadays no one calls anybody. Everybody texts. They even make a comment about that later in the movie. I was reminded of the new Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch and other things that modernize with text messages instead of like telegrams or dropping a note by. It's a great way to modernize it because they can't do scary phone calls anymore. How brilliant is it? So Arnie, I disagree. I think one of the more clever things of this movie is switching it over to texting. Yeah, I think you have to include those phone calls that was such a big part of the 74 movie and just in horror movies in general you know he knows you're alone scream drew barrymore starting with someone alone but able to communicate on a phone yeah you have to communicate the way that millennials are these days i agree you have to have prank phone calls i don't find anything nearly as creepy about getting a text that says what do a sorority girl and a ham have in common they both squeal when you kill them i don't find that to be as creepy as the heavy breathing and things i mean there's just something about an obscene phone call where they're not verbalizing i think that's one of the great things you were struggling to make out the words and finally they'd be shrieking at you or what happened to the baby agnes there's something scarier in a voice than there is in words on a screen i don't like desktop horror. I don't like Unfriended or those types of movies. I have watched them and I find them ridiculous that nobody can just log off the fucking computer. And here I just find that a text message is not as scary as actually calling. And I think that would be even better today is, I mean, yes, they can just click don't answer, but to have somebody call, they'd be like, oh wow, somebody's calling? The fact that the spirit of Calvin Hawthorne from the 18th century knows how to send direct messages is <laughs> eye-rolling. Yeah, well, that's really the question is, it's coming from something called Yip Yap, 
but their face comes up as the bust. We'll eventually find out this bust was a source of contention because it represents Calvin and the misogynistic foundings of the university. We know pretty early on, again, if you put it together with the first one, it's probably him reincarnated or in some way using magic to come back and stalk the campus 100 years later. Well, also, one more thing about this texting thing. A, you could obviously block the caller and never get these messages again, right? I'm pretty sure you could do that on any app with this sort of functionality. Maybe not Yip Yap. (laughs) Okay, well, most of them, if Yip Yap is supposed to be one that we're familiar with, quote unquote, just a different name for branding reasons or whatever. And the second thing is, don't you need to be friends with the person and or know their actual number or account to send them messages? I mean, can you send people messages on Facebook without knowing them? Well, again, that builds into a mystery. Well, then who's able to do this? What you may not guess, if you haven't seen the trailer, what they withhold from the story is that there's more than one killer. You may believe for the first hour it's one dude and you're playing a guessing game because there's so many white guys. Which one (laughs) is the awful one? I knew from 20 minutes into this movie that every white guy is the awful one. But because of the trailer, I also knew from this opening kill with Lindsay, when the guy finally shows up and he's in this hooded outfit and then she runs and she knocks on a door for help and the door opens and it's another guy in a hooded outfit, the trailer spoiled it for me. It's a group of people attacking you. It is not Ghostface. Yeah, I wish I hadn't seen that trailer, but you might just think he's Jason. Jason often has that move of, I've run half a mile down the road and he's there waiting for me at the end. Not huffing and puffing, yeah. I gotta say, this death is my favorite one in the whole movie, because when she dies, she makes a snow angel, and I thought that was really, really fun. I did like that. Actually, I think a lot of this film is artfully shot, and this was one of them when she makes the snow angel, as she's getting stabbed with the icicle, another call back to the old one, yeah. and dragged away... I think this is an effective opener. I'm with the movie. From this opening, I'm like, cool. This is pretty good. It's striking the right tone. It's not too campy, and yet it's still embracing Christmas. There's still snowmen and Christmas lights and snow angels, and they're not afraid of using the holiday, but they also aren't trying to make us laugh. I mean, pig emoji aside, I do think that (laughs) more or less this is a creepy opener. I'm right there with you as far as when the texting stops, I get really into this kill, until the stabbing, where I feel the PG-13-ness not oozing out because there's zero blood. No, let's hold on that, because I really thought about that one a lot. There is no blood in this movie. They make a big point. And in fact, when blood flows, quote-unquote, it's black ooze. That's actually what's running in the veins of these zombies, is black ooze. And we know that that's a thing with the MPAA, is if you make blood look dark... If it's not red, they're fine with tons and tons of blood on screen. They just can't stand the color red. But I have to ask, it was something I'd never considered before. Obviously, the slasher genre is known for being misogynist. Accused of being misogynist. It is. Final girl. Are we really going to have the argument that it doesn't often feature women unclothed, sexually assaulted, and murdered? And that we are to enjoy that as an act? What I'm getting at is, is the cum shot the blood gush? Are we to think of that as some kind of release when we see that blood? I mean, I do like it. I will fully admit when I see blood on screen in a violent kill, there's a cathartic rush to that. Is that to be equated with male satisfaction? I would never think that. I will not say all slasher films are not misogynistic. There certainly is a tendency 
to that, but I refuse to agree with the hypothesis that all slasher films are misogynistic and that males are the only ones who can get enjoyment, hence the ejaculation metaphor you're making, of the blood. Furthermore, I know they did shoot bloody scenes of these deaths, but when PG-13, again, I think the unrated Blu-ray will come, and there is blood in this scene. It is so downplayed, but you see a darkness spread out from the wound as she is dragged off screen. But it is downplayed for that PG-13 rating. Or maybe because we're being withheld from the gush. Maybe in embracing the PG-13, the director said, I'm not going to let you enjoy any of these kills. Then she failed. I enjoyed this kill. Can I ask, are you mad that this social justice warrior manifesto is here? No, I'm not. Here's the thing. I consider myself a feminist. I have been called a social justice warrior. I am not opposed to this kind of a message, but I am also feeling this movie is ham-fisted in its way of doing it. This movie is like a Twitter social justice warrior manifesto. It is so far left that I almost feel it's a parody made by the right. Like, there are the memes out there by the alt-right. This is the world liberals want, right? And it shows transgendered people in marriage or something. This is the world liberals want is like the quote they put on all of them. I feel like this movie is an alt-right parody that just needs the subtitle, this is the world liberals want. For example, why does Chris choose to go to a college where she's only going to hate everything about the college. Well, some people do do that. Some people are very much in love with their anger and don't want to let it go, and that makes her interesting as a character. I feel like she could have been, maybe should have been, the focus and the star of this movie. But I just want to be clear, because in this day and age, it's important to get politics out in the open. I want this movie to have its agenda. I really want it to succeed with that agenda. I just want to point out, I think maybe the time now is, I think the three of us are very much aware that we are three white males reviewing this movie. I am a Hispanic, thank you. Oh, you're right, I forgot. (laughs) I forgot for a moment that you were Hispanic, and my apologies, Arnie. No, you shouldn't feel bad, but as a Hispanic, I will say, I do not like demonization of white men, (laughs) where every white man is evil. Well, I just wanted to point that out because there's no female perspective on this show right now, the three of us doing this, and it's part of this conversation in the the political spectrum is that, are we the ones to be having this conversation? To what I would always say is if you're having a conversation, everyone's invited. I agree on that sense, Rich. Now, if you're having a screed, then maybe only certain people get to speak. I'm not for screeds, but I am for conversations. And again, I want to emphatically state, I do think that this is a great way to go. It worked for Get Out. I want it to work for this movie. I went in with this movie with an open mind, knowing it was a feminist agenda. The question is, can you do it better than Captain Marvel? Captain Marvel, I felt, sacrificed story for politics. My question is, and my review of this movie will be based on, are you a movie or are you a campaign speech? And I would say that there's no need to be subtle in a slasher movie. Slasher movies aren't subtle. They're about ripping guts out and doing things. You can be crude and open and in your face and piss people off. Go for it. I want that. What about you, Brock? Like, now that you know that this is the experience you're getting, are you recoiling or are you leaning in? Stuart, I think your point about how a slasher movie can be in your face could be valid if they actually gave us a slasher movie because this movie is not a slasher movie for the most part. For the most of the movie, this is not a traditional slasher movie at all. So I think there's absolutely a place and absolutely the right place to do it is this movie. I agree with that point. But I also think there has to be some subtlety. 
I have this thing I call the message mallet. I completely agree with the message, but my head hurt because of the amount of times they hit me over the head with it. I love that. That is awesome. I love that phrase. The message mallet made my head hurt here, especially as it went on. And then when the movie takes a turn, when they introduce these druids in the beginning and when it comes back later on and they go mystical, I'm like, why did they go mystical? Is that actually undercutting what they're saying, or is it actually accentuating what they're saying about men? And I'm still not 100% clear if they did succeed or they went against themselves with the message about men making it mystical and uh, magical. Yeah, we'll get there. But I just believe some of the audience is going to be like, I don't want to hear this. I agree. And I want to say we are not the target demographic for this movie. We're too old and we have too heavy of testicles. No, I'm arguing I want to hear this. I want to hear what a female director has to say on this issue. I'm not saying you don't want to hear it. I'm saying she doesn't give a fuck what you think. (laughs) I, I, I refuse to get into that. That sounds like social media. I'm a paying customer that's come to her film. I've come to hear what she has to offer. Yes, and that is the second part. We are not who she's catering to by any means, but if you put a movie out, every opinion is valid on that movie. And that is what we are here to do. There is no movie that is off limits to film criticism. And so that is what I am judging this film as, is as a movie, not as a political statement. I believe a lot of what they're saying is, in fact, accurate. Does this work and does this deserve to be a cinematic release? Right. So we're more or less, it's provocative, and that's good, and it's got a good kill, and that's good. I'm going to argue it's got a good lead, too. Even though I think that Riley might be more effective if she was the social justice warrior that is banning the bust of the founder of the university. She's more of a post-traumatic stress disorder victim who's uh, suffered a sexual assault. That's a way to go, too. I just think that Imogen Poots, I forget about her. Every time I see her, I'm like, oh, I've seen you in stuff and like you, but she never has any sticking power. Like, I forget where I saw her from... But we have seen her in the Fright Night remake. She was in the sequel to 28 Days Later. She's a good actress. Yeah, we've most recently discussed her in Need for Speed. I remember really liking her in Green Room. They really played down her looks here. She's a very attractive woman. She's also way too old for this part. She's 30, but they really made her look dowdy and gawky. And well, that's character. I mean, we see that they introduce her getting out of bed, looking in the mirror and opting for the baggiest, rattiest jeans, the most drab gray t-shirt. She's a victim of sexual assault. She is very uncomfortable presenting herself as sexually desirable because of that. They'll make it blatant where she loans somebody a dress she used to wear and she will never wear that dress again. Right. I agree with all of that. Arnie, I just want to make a quick comment about what you said. She looks too old for this part. I actually noticed that for the first time in one of these Black Christmas movies, I feel the girls look of college age for the most part. I actually thought they casted it well for younger women. Was she the only one you thought looked too old? Yeah, she was the only one who I thought looked out of place age. I thought the 2006 movie did good age-appropriate women. I, having rewatched the 1970s one, was like, yeah, why don't all these women have jobs? But... (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was the best version of college-age-looking girls in this series so far. 
I mean, I don't think they look age appropriate, but I think because this movie is going to ask for, again, drama, like these are characters, they're trying to build stories here. They're getting actresses that have a little bit more life experience, a little more maturity. If they were actual teenagers, if this did actually look like the set of a Disney show, it might be harder to get to some of the dramatic places that the director is pushing towards. Right. And the director wanted Imogen Poots. She has been a fan of Poots for a long time and really wanted to work with her. Everybody else, you'll notice a lot of these people don't have a lot of credits to their name. It was open tryouts for every other role. It seems like they shot this thing in New Zealand, is I think what I saw at the end. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of New Zealand actors are in this, people that haven't been brought over to America in any major way. I think she anchors the movie pretty well, actually. I'm glad she's there, but I understand the point. I do like that she's more of a victim to start than her being the one who's all uh, fighting for it. I think that's a better, stronger choice. Yeah, it's a, it's a much better arc for her to go from victim to resist her. And watch her battle that throughout the movie because you know she wants to fight and she has moments of fighting, but then sometimes she also becomes the victim again because she's so scared. It's really, of all the characters in this movie, she actually has the strongest arc. You're right. It does give her somewhere to go and we will see her walk about her sorority. Very confusing. They made the choice to have actually multiple sororities in this movie. Yeah. Lindsay was walking and talking on the phone with a sorority sister in an entirely different house than this house. And that will be very confusing later, but I just want to underline the fact that I think in the rush to get this story told, they didn't make all of the choices that would probably make the storyline cleanest. Agreed. I mean, it is it is confusing. I'm fine with them not all being in the same house, so long as they're all defined characters, which so many of them from the other house are not. We just drop anybody not from this house at a certain point in the movie and gets down to four women, really. Yeah, there's others. We're introduced first to Riley's roommate, Franny, who is screaming about a missing diva cup. Did you see her shirt when she walks in? Yeah. Your monologue is boring me. I, I kind of co-opted that for my plot summary. Exactly. So as soon as she walks in, if, you don't have, if, you, if you're not aware of the agenda of the movie, when she walks in, it's clear as day. And are you saying you don't know what a diva cup is? I'm saying I don't. Menstruation, I did talk to my wife in depth about this. I remember this from health class, yes. Uh, menstruation <laughs> is, is something that feminists and millennials are really changing the way they deal with and body acceptance and the blood is from your body, you should not be ashamed of it. A diva cup is, instead of a tampon which would absorb the blood, a cup that just captures it and then you pull it out and then walk wash it out, and reuse it. Okay. Oh, okay. All right, but you would still throw it away. No. No, I'm saying the blood. Oh, yes, you'd throw the blood away. Yeah, okay. I'm cool with it. I support that. But anyway, it's made a big deal. Franny can't find her diva cup. And this is the first clue that things are disappearing from the sorority. That someone from the Deke house is collecting items that they will use to create a black magic spell. I don't feel like this plot ever really gets defined in a way that it should. No, I mean, eventually we're going to find out that it's the needed talisman in order to, what, mark them? It's not like they use supernatural means to mark them. They stab them and choke them and do things. But of all the things to steal, the diva cup, really? Can't you just take a sock? Yeah, well, I mean, it's personal. It couldn't be more personal, frankly. But honestly, Stuart, they take Imogene Poots' hair clip. 
I mean, there's a big difference between a hair clip and a diva cup. Hair clips can be passed around. I would think diva cups wouldn't be. You know what I'm saying? So that there's personal and then there's personal. But don't forget the opening kill. Lindsay, somebody stole her vibrator because she was supposed to come back and get her Christmas gift from Chris. And Chris got her a new vibrator. And there you get the phrase, now you'll never need a man. Yeah, I do think that they are tokens of feminine power. They are very specific to the idea that with a vibrator, yeah, you don't need a dick. With a diva cup, you can have a more feminist, positive way of menstruating. And the hair clip, it's actually defined. Riley steps out and there's this little pledge running up to her and saying, you're such a great singer. And she tells this lie that, oh yeah, the night I was supposed to perform, I didn't have a voice until someone gave me this magic comb. Put this comb in your hair and you'll sing great tonight too. We will maybe not realize, I didn't because there's just so many characters being thrown at us, Helena is the traitor. This girl that's getting the comb, she's grateful of that because she was going to steal it anyway. And just to speak to Helena, as you said, she's a traitor. Takal said it was very important not all men be bad, and it's very important not all women be good because the majority of white women who voted for Trump need to be represented in this film as well. So Helena is your Trump voting white woman in this film, according to the director. Right. Interesting. I get that. And I I actually predicted that much. I felt that even though I knew from the trailer there was a fraternity of evil men, I had a feeling that it just made sense dramatically. You would want to have a female accomplice, and this is it. I have a question, though. So the female accomplice, and I'm not sure if you guys noticed this, though, but all the main women in the group have androgynous names. Riley, Chris, Marty, Jesse. The only one who is not in on that, the one who's the traitor, has a female name. Mm-hmm. It's just H- Helena. Like, even Lindsay is a, an androgynous name. So clearly these names were picked on purpose, right? But the one who is the evil girl, the one who, like you're saying, the Trump voter representation has a distinctively female-sounding name. Yeah, and we're going to get into that discussion once Riley finally gets to class as she takes this English class from Professor Gelson, Carrie Elwes. Haven't seen him in a while. Last time I saw him was Saw 7, I think. Saw the final chapter, it was called. No, actually, I saw him just a few weeks ago. He did a convention. He was signing autographs. (laughs) On screen, Arnie, on screen. (laughs) No doubt that he is doing horror cons, but I mean, just as a viable actor. I think of him in my mind as a very vibrant, handsome, young Princess Bride star. And yeah, I forget that he's still around until I see stuff like this. And he's the one talking about patriarchal language and essentially reading a Camille Paglia quote that says feminists need to just check themselves because every time they criticize male culture, they're using patriarchal language. So yes, the feminization of words and the masculinity of words seems to be at play in the names and everything else. And here they raise a question that they never answer. Because what he says is, yes, this class has a lot of white male authors in the curriculum that I will be teaching. And later, I think it's Marty says, well, should we not learn the classics? Well, they're never going to discuss that. I actually think it's online. Unfortunately, they reduced that debate into a viral video. We will learn that Chris the most social justice warrior of the sorority that Riley is a member of, she is outside, not even attending the class anymore, having people sign a petition to get rid of Gelson because apparently she raised this issue early on about the reading list and the fact that it was all white men and he, quote, went crazy on her. 
she made that video available on YouTube, and now it's a subject of debate. I think we need it in this movie. I think that scene should have happened here. It would have been more dramatically interesting than to just say that, oh, it's a petition now. Again, I wonder why Chris is at this school. Yeah, it's an excellent point, is that if she knows that at its core, Hawthorne is this pagan cult of masculinity and female suppression, maybe she's trying to change the culture within. Some people like to do that. Some people like to stir the pot, and some people like to go where they feel more accepted. Again, she's the more fun character. She's the one that I'd like to follow more because she's the active... I'm going to go change the world. And she is the one that had the bust moved as well. Another scene that we get told, but we don't see shown. There was a bust in a prominent glass case. We'll see the empty case much later. And she had it moved back to the frat of the original order of Calvin Hawthorne. And that is where the ooze came from. That is where the bad behavior came from. Are we to understand that there was no bad behavior before the ooze was released? No, because obviously the bus being removed, if the glass case is still there, is a recent event, and Riley's rape was two years earlier. Right. This is what I was getting at earlier. It seems that the idea of this supernatural reason that men go bad is at odds with what they're really trying to say about rape culture on campuses. Yeah, and truthfully... You don't need black ooze to be a date rapist. Yeah, I think it would be more effective if they kept it more real and they didn't go to the supernatural realm. And I wonder if Jason Blum and some people might have been in their ear saying, you know, Get Out was a really big hit and we had this whole auction subplot with this cult and maybe you should do something like that. The sunken place, the brain transfers. I I think that more like the black ooze than the auction. I also think it can undercut the message, but it also, I don't like the implication that it's a cult. I don't think it's what this movie needs. I think it actually could have a stronger message if that cult aspect was not there at all. I also didn't like the brainwashing aspect in these poor kids. They get killed under a spell. I mean, they did voluntarily take the stuff, right? But did they know what they were in for because they were under a magical spell they didn't understand? There's a whole bunch of aspects that adds to it that doesn't necessarily need to be there that complicates and muddies the message of the movie when you add the mystical element to it. And every time they try to clean it up, they introduce a visual metaphor. Inside the class, there's an ant farm, and we'll have dialogue throughout the movie about we're all just ants and, you know, the idea of social order. And I think what they're trying to say is that when you have a university that pushes classics that are all white men, we end up doing the bidding of all white men and we don't listen to other voices. True though that may be, ants are matriarchal. (laughs) A queen rules an ant colony. And so how can this be an ant colony if women rule ants? I just, again, every time they try to tell this story and set up the rules for how the ooze works and all of that, I feel like I just get more and more confused. I did find the ants metaphor to be a little stretched because they're going off this quiz and it's like name three animals and like the first is how you see yourself. The third was how you see your friends and the third animal was ants because Ants have a hive mind was part of it. They all think the same thing. They all work together. They're very strong. They can lift many more times their body weight. But the hive mind bit, male, female, whatever color, be an individual thinker. Well, that's what they're saying. Universities crank out people that aren't. 
You read the same things and you behave the same things. You're rewarded for adopting the beliefs of the people that wrote the books. But later on, they're going to be like, you have to go help our sister. We're ants. You know, like that's the symbol of strength. Like you want to be more ant-like. Oh, I didn't realize that they were saying that proudly. Yes. Yes. Oh, you're right. Again, it's also muddy. I feel like there are a lot of ideas here. And if they had had an extra six months to hammer out this script... Boy, it would sure be a lot more salient as a social criticism. As is, I find myself often just going, all right, what's going on? Now, one of the things that it could be doing is just keeping it real and making it about one person amongst these suspicious male figures being the actual murderer of women and not having a hive mind that every man wants outspoken women to die. They introduce Landon, who feels like the most unlikely killer and therefore probably our leading suspect. Again, this is so left that I feel it's a right parody. I do not agree with this term, but I'm going to just, this guy is the definition of a cuck. A beta male who is so lacking in self-confidence that he will agree with all these women, but what the alt-right Twitter people say is, really, they're just hoping to get laid, and if they're pliant enough and agreeable enough, then some woman will eventually take their pants down for him. This is that stereotype embodied. So the cuck comes from cuckold? Yeah, basically, you are so beta a male, you'll let your woman go and screw around on you and not do anything about it just because you're so lucky. You feel you're so lucky to have a woman at all. Yeah, and that's an interesting dynamic to play with. Again, I would argue it also means if we're supposed to trust him implicitly, this is a murder mystery, I'm looking at him first and foremost. I was of two minds to that. I was slightly suspicious, but honestly, by the point he was introduced in the movie, he was so nice, so soft-spoken, such a cuck, that I knew because he wasn't white, he wouldn't be evil. And they're signaling he's not part of the white male culture that would have the hive mindset. He wouldn't be so quick to adopt their beliefs. Plus, it's shown very soon after that he's at the fraternity house, but not a member of the fraternity. He's running the soundboard for the talent show. It's the evil fraternity's talent show, or they're hosting it, but he's just there as the AV guy. Right. So therefore, I never suspected him either because they clearly kept him outside. But what I remember about the Black Christmas original was that, you know, it was all about that controlling boyfriend and he has to be the one doing it. And he probably did do some of it. But ultimately, the big twist at the end is there's more than one bad male. So again, I thought he could be an end twist or that they would trust him and he would betray them. They kind of go there towards the end, but... But they don't because it's all brainwashing. This guy... This guy is as bland as he appears and as good as he appears from the very beginning. There is another guy who's hanging around with them, Nate, who is Marty's boyfriend. First of all, he is a good white male in this film. But am I the only one who thought he was playing it as like their gay friend for half the film? Nope. No, I definitely thought he was their gay friend. And then I realized they were doing something in the sound mix. He is good the night that they're doing the talent show. He's there backstage taking pictures with them, being encouraging, agreeing that the frat bros are awful. And then the next night at the orphans dinner, he is actually drinking beer and he's gripey and he's giving attitude to Marty. And there is a sound and a tone going on that seems to imply the bros from the frat house have gotten to him in some conspiratorial body snatchers way. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's much more clear. Another big liberal term is dog whistling. 
And what they say is a lot of the things Trump says aren't overtly racist. It's a dog whistle to racist to be like, I can't say it, but there's enough undercurrent. You know, I'm with you guys, you racists. So the literal sound of a dog whistle turns them mentally into being accepting of... Later on, they're going to be like, oh, does your head hurt? This sound will bring out your inner alpha. No, I, I get that, and I agree with that term. What I'm saying is the frat never picks up a whistle and says, let's go get those guys on the fence. I don't know the rules for how Black Ooze is doing all of this. I'm fine if they wanted to tell that story. I feel like they needed to do a whole lot more setup to explain that this is the way that fraternity orders control the mental capacities of pledges. And suddenly you're making a movie about hazing and pledging, and it's all about this guy Landon trying to get in there and the girls are a subplot. I think just the presence of those infected with the black blood brings the dog whistle sound because Nate hears that sound again before kills the night after the talent show. You know, they call him Nate only occasionally. His nickname seems to be Smosh, which I mean, okay, Boomer, I know something about a viral YouTube star named Smosh that got a movie, but like it feels like an in-joke for millennials that I'll never get. And we are neither Boomers nor millennials. That's true. Let's get back to this talent show. It's my favorite scene of the movie. I love the way this talent show goes. Of course, Riley isn't going to be in the talent show. Riley doesn't want to be seen. She will not sing despite being an amazing singer, but it's going to be a four-woman show, and one of the four gets too drunk and is about to be date-raped, and Riley saves her. Yeah, Helena, who is, again, all just play-acting. We think that she is about to be date-raped. She's actually just conspiring with the frat. And, well, let me walk through this. Riley offered to walk her home, and she said, no, you need to stay here. So she's setting her up to see her rapist when Brian comes back to the frat to judge the show. But everybody knows Brian is coming back. Right. That already been spoiled. So, again, this movie keeps talking and re-saying and then rethinking, and no clean lines in this movie. I can never really follow what's going on. I believe this entire talent show is being done so the sisters could come together and help Riley get her revenge against the guy who got away with assaulting her. Yeah, it seems like it was a surprise that Brian was coming, and yet this performance feels tailor-made to shame him publicly. So what would it have meant to sing the song if Brian wasn't in the audience? I thought they made up the lyrics on the spot because he was. In movies, people seem to know the choreography and all the words and the harmonies magically. So I just figured that the girls made it up on the spot because she wanted to send something home because he was there. Otherwise, what is the point of the four girls singing that? I mean, obviously there's a point to it, but it seemed like it would ring hollow unless she was the one to sing those lyrics in this place. And this is where I think I understand Helena's plot. Well, she was supposed to be that fourth singer, participate in that taunt, and then suddenly she can't. And that forces Riley to do something she was not prepared to do. She was not prepared, but she had to because I guess the number wouldn't have worked with three voices singing it. Well, dance choreography, obviously they're paired. But if Helena is doing what the guys want, wouldn't Helena tell the guys to be prepared that this entire number's against them? No, I actually think it's to their advantage because this video is going to be taped. Chris is going to put it on the internet and it only proceeds to make more and more people angry at the women. They don't believe the women, and so it actually helps the male culture look persecuted. But the only thing that really hurt the women, Carrie Elways is going to talk about this later on, is there's an accusation made at the end that could be grounds for a defamation lawsuit, because after this, which just 
kudos to whoever wrote the lyrics and everything turning up on the rooftop into what you did was called assault. But after Riley says to Chris, let's see if Brian rapes any more women now. And so that was what turned them against the women, not necessarily the lyrics, although there's an audience that would always turn against women for that. But the specific naming of an accuser on a viral video is what makes everybody go mad. And Chris, what a stupid move to post a video without watching it. Do you guys think I ever post a podcast I haven't listened to? (laughs) Well, I thought she did it on purpose. Again, I think she's the one that's always trying to, you know, overturn the apple cart. She's happy to name this guy publicly. She says she didn't watch the video. Is she lying to her friend? I, yes. I, again, there's so many unclean line here. I thought at some points that this abuser, Brian, had been kicked out, that they had expelled him for what he did, that Riley spoke up, and that some board believed her, but that the community at large didn't believe her. And so there was a disconnect between the disciplinary action and public opinion. Nobody believed her except for her sisters. Right. I wish that were clear because everyone knows that she made the accusation. Right. Everyone knows she made the accusation and nobody believed her. That's the whole thing is her voice was completely erased. He graduated. His picture is still up on the wall. He is a proud alumnus. Okay. All right. That doesn't feel true to me with today's climate. It feels like in today's climate, accusations are believed and acted on extremely fast. That's what the liberals will say the right wants you to believe is that things are acted on. It is true. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, but it is. We have seen many public figures be stripped of their awards and their dignity because of an alleged and probably true encounter. Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, absolutely. But on a college campus, when you're not famous and you don't have the media stirring up public opinion against you, there are still many cases that either go unreported or unbelieved. Sure, yeah. We're talking about the difference between fame and having that public power and being relatively anonymous. I remember recently the case a few years ago where it was a kid that was an athletic star. And so nobody wanted to see him not be on the team and the judge went very leniently on him. Again, you could explore that, but maybe that should be the movie. Maybe that should be the plot and not something that happened in the backstory. Because it's really confusing to try and tell us all of this after the fact at a Christmas pageant. Agreed. And it's just, you're right. I think The Rush made a messy script here where Brock's message mallet is out. Yeah, they didn't hammer out the details of the plot (laughs) with the mallet. I don't mind the loud gong on the message, but I do need to understand the rules of the black ooze and what's going on and who did what and how much the supernatural is an influence. None of that is clear at this moment. And during the talent show, Riley goes down and sees the pledges getting the black ooze. And I knew there was going to be some black magic when it was the power of the founder compels you, bringing back the power of Christ compels you from the exorcist. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Talk about unsettled. Yeah. But that's the only thing we have to indicate that there is supernatural things going on and not just that this frat has a hit list and wants to kill these women, specifically the women who have signed that petition, which we're going to see the professor Carrie always has. Right. I guess I wish I understood that too, because then people at random are being killed. I never understood why Lindsay was killed at the beginning. Did she sign the petition? We're led to believe that she is an outspoken voice later on because the girls in the other house know who she is. Yeah. Led to believe is not as strong as we saw her do it in the beginning. Like we needed to see her do 
do something. Maybe she's the one that knocks over the bust or something like that. Like you get the whole plot going. I'm not just agreeing to anything you're saying. I'm just trying to tell you what the movie's trying to tell me. But I'm right on board with both of you on that this whole thing is very muddy and hard to follow because I also agree that this message is absolutely the right message. But at this point in the movie, I'm getting very confused. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to get worse from here, and that's not a good thing if we're like halfway through, not even halfway through the movie, and we're already all confused. Well, I, and I would put at this point, I'm not as confused as I am later when things start to be explained. Right now, they're just setting up things, and I'm observing a lot of inconsistencies. Yeah, I mean, you don't get confused when you know the question is open-ended. You only get confused when the answer isn't making sense. Right, exactly. There you go. That's why whodunits are all predicated on how well you tell that ending. Like, it has to play back. When you play the tape again, it has to all fall in line. And I don't think this movie does. The more I get away from watching it, the more I realize how it doesn't hang together. And while I'm watching it, I'm realizing this is why I think it's not a slasher film is we have a full half an hour pass without any inkling of horror. Nobody's getting strange DMs. The diva cup and the vibrator may be missing, but it's not until after this show when Franny is left alone in the house looking for that white cat, do we get any hint that we're in a horror movie again. Right. I mean, that was a semi I call it the Exorcist 3 jump scare. Like, it reminds me of that guy in the white sheet that came out and in the long shot comes up from behind. It was decent, but you're right. Because we're not in that mode and we haven't been asking internally that question, who's killing the women? They've kind of lost the thread. They kind of got lost in the Riley storyline and they forgot what they were trying to build here, which is a slasher movie at Christmas time. Yeah, and again, because we see him come up with the Christmas lights, the moment those lights go around the neck, we cut away... Is that a choice or is that a PG-13 choice? I don't know, but it's unfulfilling no matter what. Right. Also, in this scene, we find out the cat's name is Claudette, and that's a callback to the first movie, right? Because the cat's name was Claude. Ah, I didn't. Good call. I like how it ends up on the roof. Like, we'll see that eventually the lights get strung up on the balcony and no one can notice because she's facing the opposite way. It feels on display in the same way that the original victim in the 74 movie was in that rocking chair with a plastic bag over her head and nobody ever looked up in that window and saw her sitting there. It kind of feels that way with Franny just there on the balcony. And I guess she's getting lost in the shuffle. Girls are disappearing right and left. Helena is gone. Lindsay is gone. Parents are calling. Everyone's concerned. We get a call back to the prank phone call because one of the cell phone lines is garbled for a second and we think that she might be making those vocal effects. No, it's a boomer who only knows how to make a phone call. Yep. And so basically, eventually, Riley is the only one connecting these dots. Everyone else is preparing for this orphans party and she goes to the campus police and says, hey, I'm being DM'd. And that means direct message, because I can tell from the blank look on your face, you don't know anything about social media. I also think it's interesting she runs into Landon, and he says he's not on social media. Come on, you guys didn't think there was something wrong with him? Not in a homeschooled way, but in like a serial killer way? No, again, he's too nice. All the reason to have your guard down. Yes, but this movie isn't subtle. I've already known at this point this movie is not going to be subtle. Having him be in on it would be subtle. It's going to be every blonde, white, Aryan male is your villain. I would say the culture is the villain. The culture is the black ooze, and that culture can infect everyone, including Landon. He will eventually be co-opted by it. 
but it is all streaming out of the eyes like tears of evil <laughs> that Bust is crying on the talent show night and we don't see it. It's not like it's Venom. It doesn't crawl over people's body and they become evil. We don't see a nice guy become bad because they touch it. <laughs> I thought that would be the case because later on they're going to be like, the cat has some stuff on her paws. I thought it was Venom. I thought it was going to overtake the cat. I wish this movie had that money. Maybe they were thinking that, but they didn't have the money or ran out of time. It feels like they had a lot of ideas and then realized they couldn't get to them with the rush production. And what do they have to do with this ooze? Does the ooze not work on women? Because when Riley's spying on them, she gets the ooze on her fingers. Is that when she yells at Chris? Does the ooze affect her when she's telling Chris, you're not making change, you're pissing people off? A clean script would let us know the rules. And all of these ideas would be really well thought out and addressed. Stuart said something about how it doesn't turn nice guys bad. It does, it does exactly that. We don't see an instance where, uh, I mean, yes, we see a pledge walk up and get something on their forehead, and then later they're the killer in the mask. Right. But we never saw that pledge at the kegger being good to a girl and, and not aggressive or assaultive. Langdon gets the ooze later on and turns bad. So therefore, we do see exactly that. We see a guy who, for the rest of the movie, the whole rest of the movie, is fine until he gets the black ooze, and then he's now evil. So therefore, they're saying all men, no matter who they are, if they're nice to you, no matter what, they can turn evil on you. Is that what they're trying to say with that? All people that become receptive to the culture that's being dispensed by Calvin Hawthorne will eventually have their mind clouded into believing that men have more rights than women. But I don't think he was receptive. He was forced. He shows resistance to it, but he still goes along with it, right? His hands are clenching. Yeah, and my point would be they wait till the very end to to articulate that, which, again, it would be helpful to understand uh, what was going on. Once we know that there's multiple killers, because once we finally get to Orphan's Night, arrows start flying, and then it really does become, I think, a, a horror movie again, Arnie. I think an action movie. I don't feel like these are set up scary kills. I feel like this is die hard. I think it's a zombie movie. They're zombies because they're all in this black goo and they keep coming after you and there's more than one of them and they're easily dispatched, right? You can kill a zombie more easily than you can kill a terrorist in the building or uh, you can kill serial killers in these serial killer movies. So to me, it became a zombie movie. Jesse is a slasher kill. There's a character that's always on her phone, that's never listening to anybody, that everyone likes to include in the group, even though she's not invested in the group. And she, for reasons, goes up to the attic to get some Christmas lights. It's actually a pretty good setup because the camera keeps panning back and forth between the socket on the wall and the bin where she's getting all the lights. And she's like, do Christmas lights expire? And then eventually she gets one to turn on and in the dark right there, a jump scare is a guy in a mask. Is the mask... Calvin? I couldn't figure out if the mask was representative of anything symbolic. I have no idea. No idea, buddy. Okay. (laughs) I just thought it looked almost like Imhotep or something like that. Imhotep. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. I do. He's the mummy. Yeah, I get it. I love it. I was thinking more Guy Fawkes. Also, Dr. Doom passed in my head, but that's clearly not Dr. Doom. I guess the opportunity to do something with that was lost on the makers. They were rushed too fast. This would have been a perfect opportunity to make a statement about what face toxic masculinity takes. Maybe it's faceless. That's the point. Mm, Okay. And then it could have been more faceless. It could have not had eyes. And there's artistic ideas that could have been expressed here that I feel nobody's going to want this doll. Nobody's going to want this figurine. They have haven't come up with a very credible vision
vision of the evil. Nate's girlfriend, Marty, also dies from wounds, though. She survives for a while, but she does die of wounds. That was kind of a grabber. I was not expecting arrows to go flying in, in the living room at that point. I felt like the movie kicked in. Felt a uh, little Carpenter once we finally saw that. First, we just think one guy with a bow and arrow, and then we realize multiple guys are in the house. Again, I knew there would be more coming. The trailer fucked this movie up for it me. It did. I tried to put blinders on and pretend, but I was trying to imagine what I would be thinking in that moment, and I would be thinking that they're telling us I should be trying to figure out who did it. And it took me a while to realize they wanted it to be a supernatural ooze. The trailer did not reveal the supernatural bit, but I knew these were going to be frat bros coming together because the trailer so undermines this movie because very rarely will people see a movie or be interested in a movie. The trailer is the advertisement there to sell you, but this movie is made where the mystery is everything. And so the worst thing about this movie is truly its marketing. Yeah, it hurt it. I don't know what they could have shown that would have enticed people that wouldn't have been spoiler, but I do feel like I really wish I didn't have some of the surprises that could have worked spoiled outright. If they'd sold this like they sold the last two Black Christmases, I rewatched the trailers for those, and sold it as a slasher, it's a lie. Because that's not going to hit the demographic they want. But by hitting the demographic they want, it makes this movie have... No suspense for me. They telegraph who each next kill is going to be. I never question that. I mean, because Chris was in the trailer. I know Chris is going to make it because it's Imogen Poots and Riley is our main character. I know she's our last girl, although there's not a last girl. There's a last sorority. I think some of this stuff is, I mean, it's kind of funny, the setup, but like when they're hiding under the credenza in the kitchen and she's like, I'm going to go handle it. And she stands up and like the killer is hiding by like just standing there on the island looking down on her. There were murmurs. There were titters in the audience. People were like, oh, you know, like I feel like there's some basic understanding (laughs) of the slasher genre and the surprise. My audience didn't titter because there was no audience. (laughs) That was the time when I laughed, and I was the only person who seemed to be enjoying anything he was watching, because when the killer was standing on the island, I thought that was so clever. Yeah, very funny. Yeah, Yeah. it's a little campy, and this movie could use an injection of, of fun. I do think that it's gotten a little strident. I don't want to say it's all bad, but I do feel like because the impulse is not to relish in the suspense and the harm that befalls certain women, you're ultimately hurting a suspense movie. You're trying to say, I don't want to give you any moments of tension because it makes women look weak. And I'm sorry, but the empowerment comes from them moving from a place of being taken advantage of. We can get there. We can see them strong, but we do need to feel like these guys in masks are a threat. And unfortunately, they look like a bunch of dumb frat bros. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually pretty cool with the movie so far. It's much better than I expected it to be when we reach the one hour mark. I'm not loving it, but I'm sitting here like... This could be the best Black Christmas ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I'm with the movie for the first hour. They've given us the twist that finally we can, we can all understand. It's the whole fraternity, and they're all out to get these women, and how are they going to fight back? They try to do this Silence of the Lamb trick. If you remember in that movie, there's a really good surprise where you think the FBI is storming the killer's house and they keep cross-cutting and you think that Buffalo Bill is going to answer the door and there's going to be a ton of guys with guns and it ends up being Jodie Foster. Here we're to understand that the doofus security campus guy is running to the aid of the sorority, but it's another sorority that's being attacked by guys in cowls. 
and we barely understand who they are and what they're going through. It's both surprising, but also disappointing. Yeah, it's surprising because it's really piss poor done. This is where I'm like, okay, this movie's poorly made. It wanted to be Silence of the Lambs. Instead, because we have no idea what's going on, it is a cheat and a poor, poor move. And then the fact that these women become an army, they're ants, I guess, right? So they're all going to bond together. These are just more ants. Yeah, I don't feel like this is the best way to fight toxic masculinity. It's just just to, like, brawl in the streets, like, (laughs) savages. Uh, But I guess it's what you would expect in a dumb horror movie. It's the way that the metaphor is going to play out as a climax. I guess all I'm saying is, because we really didn't understand the sorority other than from the opening kill, it feels distracting that the main characters we're with aren't a part of the solution writing in at the end. Agreed, completely. If you focus on four women, those four women need to be your main characters. The deus ex machina of another sorority full of ninja women, not that they do flips and things, but that they're all very skilled with weaponry, is ridiculous. And the only people who will enjoy it, they're preaching to the choir. The ones who just want to see women rise up and kill men, and we don't care that they're not characters. It's just... A brouhaha. Will they enjoy that? I mean, I, I think it's worth asking. I think this is so technically poor, done at the end, that I don't think anyone's going to enjoy it. It's pandering to the pre-built audience. I think that they will hold this up as the only good slasher film in all of history. You know, a similar thing was done, Arnie. I knew you were a fan also of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer television series. Yes, big fan. Okay, so I was as well. And the last season, it turns out that Buffy is not the only Slayer that at the last big final battle between the vampires and the Slayers is a whole bunch of women become Slayers and are able to do that. And this kind of evokes that a bit that you can stand up and go against the oppression if we work together as a team, all of us are stronger together. All those wonderful kinds of messages. But the difference, it was done so much better in that TV show now, maybe because they had multiple episodes or maybe because it was just better written. But the point is, this has been done before, much stronger, much better, and with the same kind of message. Here, it seems like everybody knows how to fight. I was very surprised how good fighters everybody was. It took me aback. I didn't see any women get killed in that final battle. I saw only men get killed. And one of them, Una, is actually a Power Ranger. I guess, like, that's her day job, is that she puts on, like, the pink suit and does this on television. So, I wonder if some of these people aren't just stunt people that they were able to bring in and say, do some choreography. I don't have time to set it up. You guys know what to do. Have at it. But it, unfortunately, it robs Riley of her moment. We really need to see her triumph. If she's been struggling with being herself and a to take down Brian should be a big part of it. I feel like that gets lost in the scuffle. Yeah, because Riley goes with Landon to the frat house to get the bust, and this is where Landon starts smashing things up to be a distraction. He's really mad but that they killed his mixing board, and she goes downstairs, and they trap her there. We've already said Landon gets turned with the ooze. They put the little symbol on his forehead. But yes, it does eventually come down to a fight between Riley and Brian, and Brian gets on top of her, and she starts having rape flashbacks that we get to see. I think that might actually be a little overt. I think that might actually trigger victims of sexual assault to see this. But for no apparent reason, she suddenly hulks out, becomes super strong, flips him, and then can lift this giant 
stone bust above her head? Why is this not Marvel She-Hulk movie? Yeah, did she take on the ooze and perverting its properties? Rules, understanding, we don't care, we just want to see this moment happen and it doesn't need to be explained. That feels like what's ruling the day at this point. And breaking that bust, I want to point out, doesn't stop the men. If you were telling me that we're all victims of some kind of groupthink that can be represented on screen as black ooze, breaking the vase of black ooze should free everyone. We should see everyone here at the end happy to be free of their chains. I guess Landon becomes somewhat agreeable. He becomes his cuck self and goes and follows her out the door. Strangely enough, they lock the door behind them, trapping many sorority women in there to be burned alive. I thought that I did see them all wake up And then when she locked them all in, I was like, wait a second, they're all woken up, or at least some of them are woken up, and they should be able to get out of there because they're no longer under the spell. But I didn't see that they locked the girls, and I thought all the girls got out. I thought they only locked the men in. I thought they were fighting still. All the women got out. No, I know that they're standing there at the end, but when they were closing the door, they were still fighting inside. I was confused is all that I'm trying to say, as I have been for much of this movie. Yes, and I agree with you, but the impression I got was, and I got the same problem, why are they killing people at this point who are no longer under the spell? But And they use the fraternity paddles to lock the door, which of course is more imagery. So yeah, it, it is just a strange last image. <laughs> it's a fucking mess. It looked like all the sorority women ran out the door, though, and this isn't the kind of movie, I think, where the ants would sacrifice the other ants, but the only man to make it out is Landon. Yeah. And they just stand there and Riley smiles watching them all die. Yeah, definitely built to provoke. I think that's probably a good instinct, but is it a good movie? Well, the cat thinks so. (laughs) (laughs) There is the stinger mid-credits. We get to see the cat drink the black ooze. And I had the same thought you guys had earlier. I thought, oh, maybe in the sequel, the cat will be evil. But then how does that go along with the message of the movie? Cats are feminine. The fact that it's lapping up the toxic masculinity says who won. Right? It's a statement. It also maybe, and a lot of people make jokes about how cats are evil and want to take over the world. But that's a different movie for a different day. So, uh, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Black Christmas 2019? Stuart. Yeah, you know, I feel like that college professor that's got to decide whether they're going to flunk the troublemaker. You know, that person that's really smart and they have a lot of good things to say, but they speak up inappropriately and disrupt and don't do their work and don't show the ethic that you want to reward. And that's Black Christmas. I mean, I think they get real by talking about gender politics of the day. I think that's a good instinct. I think sometimes when they're actually trying to tell a slasher movie, they have some of the chilly suspense of the original movie. They honor what Black Christmas 1974 was. I think they've got a very appealing star in Imogen Poots. And I don't mind that they withheld the gore because it made me really reflect on what that means and if that is some kind of built-in misogyny to the genre itself. One thing I couldn't shake, though, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? I feel like you could remove the mistletoe, rename this Pledge Week, and it wouldn't be any different. In fact, it might even play stronger if it wasn't trying to build in the whole end of the year, everyone's going away thing, and just make it about being in the sorority or the fraternity. 
I saw green lights here. I saw red lights here. But ultimately, I'm going to call this a lump of coal. It doesn't work. There are just too many things that are confusing. And I'm not just talking about story ideas. I mean, the movie itself. I can't tell what she's holding in her hand. I couldn't hear what she said in that scene. I can't tell in this moment who's dead and who's alive. Like, just the rush of trying to get this movie finished, I feel like it loses all threads. And so, as much as I'd like to to say that this was a really smart update of the original, I just am not going to sign that petition. It comes all the way to the end. I was willing to give it that pass and say, imperfect though you are, so was the original. But when all they could think of to do was like kill them all in that kind of climax, I just felt like it was lazy. I felt like, in this day and age particularly, yeah, this is a gift you don't want to receive. Arnie. Mm, It's a lump of coal. As a slasher film, it's a clear red arrow. It just does not work as a slasher film for so many reasons we've discussed. The lack of good kills, be it because of the PG-13, it might work better as a slasher film if the unrated slash R-rated Blu-ray is released, which I'm suspecting they will do. Then the question is, what about the message? I've stated at the top, I think it's a correct message to say. There is still the current of toxic masculinity that leads to campus assault. It is constantly in the news. The problem is, this movie has nothing new to say about it. I could go on Twitter for five minutes and read these exact same messages and get as much entertainment out of it, quite honestly. This is preaching only to the choir and not saying anything new or nuanced at all. It is 100% a Twitter manifesto in cinema form. I did like Imogen Poots in it. I think her arc was very good, and I do think it's the second most entertaining Black Christmas film, but I've not recommended even the best Black Christmas film, which is still 2006's ridiculous one, and so it is going to be a not recommend, although a, a weaker not recommend. And we're three for three for like an image in Poots. I thought her character was good. I thought what she brought to it was great. I thought she knew what movie she was in. And I I liked that and I appreciated that very much. But as I have stated earlier in this podcast, I agree with you both that I think this is the right message for this time. I think it's a great idea to bring this into this sort of genre all of that in agreement. My problem with the movie is the message is very muddied for me. I can't understand what they're saying all of the time. Sometimes it's right over the head with my message mallet, and other times they seem to undercut what they're saying with the mystical elements. I just don't think they had enough well-thought-out ideas on how to present what they wanted to say. I think they had ideas of what they wanted to say, and they got all that in there, but what it all adds up to, I don't think they agreed upon. And when I say they, I mean the filmmakers and how many people had their fingers in the pot. So I am right there with the Red Arrows. I'm 0 for 3 with Black Christmas as well, although, again, I want to give the props to what they were trying to go for. I just think they missed the mark. So where to from Black Christmas for the rest of this holiday season, guys? It's more movies that nobody's going to. Something about a galaxy far away and some kind of volleyball with a robot face. Sounds good to me. I'll look that one up, see if I can find anything about that on the internet. Yeah, I'll, I'll see it, whatever it's called. Bios. One of those independent movies. Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. To go from a movie that I didn't know would really be coming out to a movie that I have been anticipating for (laughs) so long. Truthfully, since Disney started putting out Star Wars movies, this has been the longest we've gone without one, and I can't wait for it. 
I'm looking forward to it as well. And looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about it. Well, Brock, you'll be joining us on this Friday. And so can listeners. If they become patrons, we're going to look at the movie that Star Wars could have been. Long time ago, Galaxy Far Away, Lucas actually optioned the old serial Flash Gordon. It was made in 1980. And we had a patron ask that we do it. And we're going to. I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. And in the meantime, if you want more horror, and maybe better horror, you can join us in <laughs> Japan for the Grudge series. It is our gold level. It is ongoing. We are building up to that new Grudge movie I saw the trailer for that's out in just a couple weeks. So yes, we got Star Wars next Tuesday on the main feed. Misery the week after that for the holidays. Ooh, yeah. Going back to some Stephen King. And then we get back to King Kong in the new year. This Friday, Flash Gordon. And then back to two a week after that. A great way to feast over the holidays. Grudge reviews as we do the final Japanese Juons. Leading to, I saw a new trailer for The Grudge 3 before... Black Christmas, looking good. It does look good, actually. I'm hopeful that we can finally have a good American version. I haven't really liked the American ones as being solid good movies, but fingers crossed, this one has some talent behind the camera and in front, and I think we could be in for a recommend. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing that show and seeing those movies as well. So thank you again for listening. We're happy to have you here, and we'll talk to you soon. You made your point. Why did you back here? I just called the police. They'll be here any second. If you leave now, you can save yourself. Thank you for listening to this now-playing podcast movie review. Put the Christmas music back on. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You just want to feel at home, especially on Christmas. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Peter, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb of Kai? They could use a little of this. In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. He's probably listening to us right now. A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. Could you give me the number? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, Fellatio 20880. Now playing relies on listener support to keep operating. You're all, like, my family now. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. So why don't you go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it? That'll give you a charge. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. Hey Santa, if I sit on your lap, will you give me what I want for Christmas? You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Could you just give it to me one time? Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. 
Lauren, we're opening up presents. Blair, we're opening up presents. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. Just spread out and follow that. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Could that be one person? Associate produced by Jason Latham. Mrs. Quaid and Mr. Harrison have asked me to extend their thanks to you for coming out on this cold night to help. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. That sucks. Everyone should be home for Christmas. Now Playing credits read by Brock. That, that fucking voice. That was the fucking devil, okay? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. X, don't you tell what we did, X? All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. So he went down to the police station with Phil and Bob. What happened? They didn't take it seriously. Why? I don't know. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. I will bring you to your knees. You beg for mercy? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Fuck Christmas. Fuck it. If it wasn't for now playing, I would not know this film exists. Then I guess we need to tell people the plot, Arnie. No, Stuart. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I drew that straw. I forgot. Yeah, it's funny how that works. <laughs> An evil professor played by Carrie Elwes comes out to manalog the whole conspiracy plot about some... <laughs> oh, I'll say it again. No, I love that word, no, manalog. No, good. Leave it. Leave uh, it. No, I did that on purpose, but I... I, I... <laughs> yeah, because she goes with... Langdon. She Landon. goes with, she goes with, yeah, I, I keep having to think Michael Landon, you know, Highway <laughs> to Heaven. <laughs> yeah, another beta male, though. I mean, he was never masculine. I, I think that's why they name him Landon.